Now let's talk about the last decade or what we, what we call now, what I call these 21st century Jerusalem. What this class has done is basically set the background, not just religiously, but politically, economically, um, nationalistically, for all of the history of Jerusalem that, that brings us to this point today. This has been a flashpoint for a number of years. The conflict's still going on, and it, I don't care what religion you are, or if you are religious, or uh, of what nationality you are, for, for some reason, this conflict between Israel and Palestine is always in the news. And everyone stops to pay attention to it, including this past weekend. I'm going to give you very quickly some of the highlights uh, of, not highlights, lowlights, uh, some of the key things that have happened in the past decade. And again, you can download the, uh, I, wrote, I wrote this thing for a panel at the Tommy Course website, and you can get a nice summary of this. Um, here's Israel and Palestine, the greater Near Eastern context. Turkey up here to the north, which is kind of the end of Asia, right? Remember, part of Istanbul is actually in Europe, but Turkey for the most part in the north. You've got Syria here and Lebanon. Syria is still kind of the main power broker in Lebanon. They, they, they were during the, the uh, Lebanon-Israeli war recently. That was one of the issues. Syria is the, the main power, and the Lebanese feel like they don't really have control of their own destiny because Syria has so many agents in there trying to do this pro-Syrian stuff. You've got Jordan to the west. Remember, Jordan used to control the West Bank, but then at one point ceded it over and said, it's all yours. You guys take care of it. It's all yours. And then Jordan turned around and made peace in the 90s, formal peace with Israel. So you can cross from Israel into Jordan today. The Gaza Strip is this narrow strip right here against the Sinai Peninsula, which is part of Egypt. This little strip right here, technically part of Palestine. Part of it's we're always referred to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They're not connected, they're, they're, they're not contiguous, but it's part of one entity. Um, and then, of course, you've got Saudi Arabia uh, to the south, you've got Iraq not too far away, just, just over, and then you've got Iran over here to the east. So, this is kind of the, the Near Eastern context. Uh, let me show you a little close up of this. There we go. So same map, just tighter. So here again, you can see this kidney bean-shaped thing, what we call the West Bank, because it's on the west bank of the Jordan River. Right? Remember Jordan before it was called Jordan, was called Transjordan, because it was across the Jordan, a very European-centric name to give to a place. Now they're over the Jordan, we'll call them the over the Jordan. Right? Um, you've got this area down here, which there's just not a lot of people living in it. Um, uh, it's called the Nega, but it's part of the state of Israel. And then, of course, the Gaza Strip is right here, which abuts the Sinai Peninsula, which is uh, controlled by Egypt. I also want to point out this little region up here in the north. You see what says Golan Heights? The Golan Heights was at one point a part of Syria and a little part of it, part of Lebanon. Uh, but during uh, the Six-Day War, Israel not only defended itself from all of the nations around it, but took the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt and took the Golan Heights from Syria. The Israelis have since given back control of the Sinai to Egypt in exchange for peace. And they were about to, I think I mentioned this at one point, they were about to, in 2000, uh, give back the Golan Heights uh, to Syria in exchange for peace. But the uh, Syrian leader um, uh, uh, died kind of overnight, and then 
that was the end of the peace. Promise that was the end of the peace negotiations. So at this point, this is Mount Hermon, by the way, Mount Hermon, um, uh, which is up there. It's the highest point in the region. So that's the highest point, and this is the lowest point. So that's why you call it the Jordan River. Jordan meaning to go down, the descender, right? The Jordan literally means to go downer. So it goes down from the highest point in the region to the lowest point on the face of the earth. Jordan means to go down, or descend. So this is the West Bank here, and Israel then would be the desert, which is, there's not much here, but this strip along the coast, and then this northern region, and now the Golan Heights, which is kind of the, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and then up to the north, uh, up into the hills. And that's still a point of contention up there with Golan Heights. Let me give you some key dates on a few slides. Up until 2000, Israel kept a 12-kilometer uh, force along the, its northern border in Lebanon. So uh, Israel kept an army, kept a force in Lebanese territory, occupied the southern 12 kilometers of Lebanon. Their reason for doing so, they state, is that it kept uh, people who didn't like Israel from driving up to the border and shooting. Remember, it's up in the hills, right? This is a very hilly region. And there's some Israeli cities, namely Matula, Kiryat Shimona, that are right there on just south of that border. And militants would come up and then just shoot, uh, they call them uh, Katusha rockets. They shoot these rockets that don't have a guidance system. They're very deadly, but you just kind of fill them up with gas and you launch, you launch them off the back of a truck. And when they run out of gas, they fall, and whoever they kill, they kill. And they didn't want this happening to their civilians because they were often just targeting, you know, indiscriminately trying to drive people, scare people from moving up there. They don't want Israelis, Jews, settling up there. They don't want them anywhere near, so they would shoot rockets and try to drive them out of it. Israel kept a force in the southern part of Lebanon, but what that means is they're occupying southern Lebanon, which is never nice politically. Ehud Barak kind of ran on a campaign of, if you elect me prime minister of Israel, uh, I will remove that force out of southern Lebanon. It's kind of like Barack Obama saying, if you let me president, I'll withdraw all the troops from Iraq. Uh, Ehud Barak did it one night, and I was there. I was. I watched it. I, I, this sounds terrible, but I was. We were sitting out one night, and we just started hearing explosions. We were digging at Bonnius. We were digging at a place uh, right on the border of the Golan Heights in, in Israel, and uh, we're sitting in the kibbutz, and all of a sudden we hear explosions and rockets, and we're like, "What? They just went to war." But what it actually was, was uh, the, seventh, the commander of the seventh, Southern Lebanese Army uh, did a press conference from like Paris. And all of a sudden, all of the Southern Lebanese Army realized all the higher ups are getting out of town. That means that if, if, if Israel pulls out of Southern Lebanon, then all these Southern Lebanese soldiers that have been fighting kind of with Israel against Lebanon, kind of, kind of uh, going along with the occupiers, they thought, oh, we're dead. Right? So as soon as Israel saw the, the Southern Lebanese army commanders leaving, they said, we've got to get out right now. So overnight, they dismantled what they could of their, of their uh, army bases and drove south towards Israel. And then so that their munitions wouldn't fall into the hands of the Lebanese, they were blowing them up. So basically, you get what you can, you get out of Dodge, and then you go back to your munitions dump and you blow them up. And that's what we were watching, was the Israelis blowing up Israeli munitions dumps in southern Lebanon. This was considered a, a positive move. Basically, we're going to trust the Lebanese to take care of themselves. We're going to trust that you're not going to blow us up. Uh, Barack removed the 
the uh, army out of the southern, out of southern Lebanon, and that was considered a, a move towards peace. Right? A move towards peace. We're no longer going to occupy Lebanon. Um, but not too long, as we've already mentioned, the, the Al-Aqsa Intifada, the second Intifada. Again, uh, having a lot to do with uh, the candidate for prime minister, Errol Sharon. Errol Sharon, of course, was a military general leader for, for years and years. He considered a hawk, right? He spent all his life fighting against not only Palestinians, but all these wars on behalf of Israel. And he was running for uh, prime minister. He went up on the, the Al-Aqsa. So they, there was the beginning of this, what we call the second Intifada which just this week, Mahmoud Abbas said, uh, we shouldn't have done that. We should have just said, okay, go up there, it's a political thing, and not start the Intifada, because that actually derailed the peace for some time. What changed everything was September 11, 2001. Now, I know we hear that all the time, but let me just, let me make an argument here. When Al-Qaeda flew, flew into the Twin Towers, and when those towers fell, the United States, who was always trying to tell Israel, don't retaliate, don't retaliate, don't fight back, they're just, it's just indiscriminate Palestinian terrorists, they don't represent all of Palestine, most of the Palestinian people want peace, don't fight back, please don't retaliate, don't fight back. As soon as those twin towers fell, we went and took out not one, but two countries, right? The US turned around and took out Afghanistan and then went after Iraq. In the name of, what, preemptive strikes or no one does this to us, or however you want to describe it, the US turned around and went after two different whole countries. When that happened, the Israeli cabinet, the Israeli leadership realized, we can do that too. And if the Americans tell us, don't retaliate, don't retaliate, don't retaliate, we can just say, hey, you're doing it too. Don't, don't be hypocritical, right? So September 11th changed this peace process because Israel was emboldened to say, we too will fight terrorists. We too will fight people who shoot at us. We too have a right to defend our country and to make preemptive strikes in the places where there are no terrorists. And the US really could do nothing but say, you know, you really, we really wish you wouldn't do that while we're off doing it ourselves. Um, then, not long after that, uh, Israel in 2002 begins construction of what we call today the West Bank Barrier. It's got a thousand names, the border between Israel and West Bank or, or whatever. But they begin to build a, a physical border. Now, the, the rationale by the Israelis was we need to try to put up a, a border. If we're going to have two states, if, if there's ultimately going to be a Palestine and an Israel, we need to put up a border that at least tries to stop terrorists from coming in and blowing things up. And I think anybody who brings in a bomb to a pizza joint Right, or to uh, you know, on, on prayers or any hold on either side, um, I would consider that terrorism. So they're trying to stop that, and so they put up a fence. But there were objections on both sides. Both Jews, Jews objected to this fence and Palestinians. Jews objected. These are the militant right wing because they think, why should we give away any land to Palestine? Don't put up a fence. We're going to keep it all. And they're, they're losing out, by the way. They're, that voice is kind of the, the Israeli people democratically kind of pushed that to the side. But the big uh, objection came from Palestinians, who said two things. One, if you build a wall and all the jobs and the industrialization is in the Jewish, uh, pardon me, the Israeli areas, you're going to depress our economy. We can't get to work, or it will take us six hours to get to work. And that's one of the chief complaints. The other complaint, a bigger, longer-term complaint, 
is that the, because the Israelis and the Palestinians never can get together and sit down and make orders, make peace, the Israelis would say, all right, well, if you're not going to join us at the table, then we're just going to build, build this fence where we think it should go. Okay? Now, the Palestinians want them to build the border back on the 1949. Remember after the, after the armistice, after the, after the ceasefire? And they drew up, the UN drew up this line that we have, it's the green line, you should know the green line. They said, you should put that border there. And Israel comes back and said, we offered to do that. Remember the armistice? We accepted it. We didn't like it, but we accepted it. You guys, you Palestinians were the ones who rejected it. And you keep rejecting it, you keep rejecting it. So we're just gonna go ahead and make the border what we think. Now, the border is usually on the West Bank side of it. So Palestinians consider it a land grab. Israel's making a fence, but they're not putting the fence where it's supposed to be. Because why? They've created settlements in the West Bank. Well, we can't just cut off our people and put them in the right. We've got to build a fence on our side of them, and that's what's happening. The whole issue with settlements in modern Israel is that because there's a status quo, because you're not supposed to fight, and Israel's in control, they just keep building these settlements into the West Bank, into East Jerusalem, into, and then once they're built, they turn around and say, you can't, you can't cut them off. You can't put them in there. They, they thought this was Israel. And so what you get is this very complex, let me show you here. You get this very complex border that actually shoots in the West Bank and grabs this settlement, comes back out, and comes in here and grabs this settlement. And look at East Jerusalem, right? Instead of coming down here through the old line, it's trying to grab this settlement, trying to go out here and Eastern grab this settlement. And the Palestinians are saying, no, you can't, that's, that's, the 47th, you know, you, that's not the line. And Israel said, hey, you rejected that line. And as soon as you're ready to come sit down with us and make peace, we'll talk borders. But the Palestinians will turn around and say, you know, part of them, like Hamas, says, we don't want any of them. I said, well, we don't, certainly don't want to talk to them. And others say, well, we want to figure out Jerusalem first, or we want to figure out the water first, or we want to do all this first. And Israel says, well, why don't we fix the borders first? And they say, no, we, we're not going to sit down with you. And they say, okay, we'll keep building the fence. So that's kind of what's going on. Anytime you hear the issue of settlements, it's basically one of the words, one of the ways to describe it is a ghettoization. Israel just is going to continue to buy up land and to build and declare new settlements in the, in the West Bank. The Palestinians don't have a military, they have a military, but they don't have the military or the money to stop it. The Palestinians don't have the money to come in and develop their land. So the Israelis just keep authorizing this. Uh, in fact, very recently, uh, in March, the, Pal uh, the Israeli government announced another settlement in East Jerusalem while Vice President Joseph Biden was in the country. It was very embarrassing for the U.S. because the, the U.S. is coming here trying to make peace, and while Vice President Biden is in the country, the Israelis announced, by the way, we're going to have another 1,600 housing units in East Jerusalem. They later apologized for the timing of the announcement. They said it was unkind and, and, and undiplomatic to announce that settlement while vice president. But they didn't apologize for building right? So this is the thing. When you hear about settlements in East Jerusalem, this is the problem. The more time goes by and Israel's in control, they'll continue to buy up land and they'll continue to create settlements in East Jerusalem. And if this process continues, pretty soon this will all be Jewish territory. Then how do you draw the border back in here and cut those people off? You don't want to do that. So that's the thing. As time goes by, I think it's safe to say it favors the Israelis. As time goes by, this is why there needs to be, if you if you want to forestall any future arguments about borders, you need to get in there and make. We need to get in there and make peace right now. Two states and figure out a border and go forward. 
but there are people on the Israeli side, or at least the Jewish side, and on the, on the Palestinian side, or the Muslim side, that don't want either state to exist. And they have guns, and they blow things up. And when they do these terrorist activities, the other side usually retaliates. Then it all goes to pot, and then we walk away from the peace table. And ultimately, that process serves, I think, the Palestinians. But that's just me. So, is it a case of good fences make good neighbors, or is it the case of apartheid? And apartheid, I don't like to use the word because it's kind of a South African thing. It's, it's a very, very unique to South Africa. But this is what some people will say, that it's a wall trying to distinguish between two ethnicities. Other people say, no, it's a border between two countries. If we want two states, we need to have a border. The U.S. has a border, kind of, in, in some places, right? If you go to Tijuana, you've got a nice, big, tall fence and a border. But other places, you don't, which is, by the way, the, the current status of this. Where is the border built? Where is the wall built? In and around Jerusalem, some of these settlements. Down in here, you don't really have the wall built. I think it's only 55% built right now around the West Bank. A couple of others, and then I'll stop and take some questions. Oh, i got to get moving. I'm sorry I'm going so fast. You could spend an entire class on this lecture alone, as you know. Um, PNA Chairman Yasser Arafat dies. Um, so this is the end of a long era. As soon as he dies, remember I told you that senior Palestinian official who, who gave a lecture to us while we were in Israel, uh, we had actually were in East Jerusalem, um, said, you know, basically, Arafat had long been thought by the Palestinian people to be embezzling a lot of money for himself. and um, the, the PLO hired some accountants to audit uh, Arafat's accounts, and it turned out he had a billion dollars stored away. Right? He had this billion dollars, and uh, some say he was channeling it to his wife, who was living, I think, in Paris. And when he died, they said, "Okay, we want we want that money because that's Palestinian money. It needs to go to build the infrastructure of Palestine." And there was a big uh, issue between Palestinians and, um, and and Arafat's wife over who gets that money and. And who, who can talk to Arafat? Who can talk to uh, Chairman Arafat? So that was a big issue. But what you begin to immediately see upon the death of Arafat is a rift between the Palestinians. Basically, those who were loyal to Arafat and said, no, we're on the right track with making peace, and those who feel Arafat sold them out and said, you know what, we need to, we got sold out in the Oslo Accords, we need to nullify that, and we need to fight some more. Right? We need to take this back ourselves. Seeing that, Israel decides, Errol Shalom decides, the Prime Minister of Israel, decides we're going to unilaterally disengage from Gaza. After all those years of allowing settlements in Gaza, remember Gaza Strip, that little strip down on the Sinai border? Sharon uh, says, we're going to pull the troops, uh, all, all not only our troops, but all Israeli settlements out of Gaza. Now, the Israelis who were settled in Gaza didn't like this. They had to be forcibly removed at gunpoint. So this is Israelis removing Jews, removing Israelis from Gaza. But Sharon's trying to keep his end of what he thinks is the deal, and that is, we're going to pull all the Israelis out of Gaza. Gaza is yours. And then they pull them out, and then they put up a big wall, and there was a big wall. And basically that became, okay, if you want Gaza, if you want us out of Gaza, and you keep shooting our settlement, we'll get out of Gaza. So the, the, the Israelis pulled out of Gaza, and now you've got this little thing completely sectioned off. And um, a little later, they will impose a uh, blockade, a naval blockade, meaning no one gets in or out, nothing gets in and out, at least is supposed to get in and out, of Gaza. So Israel disengages from Gaza. In 2006, something remarkable happened. 
it's up to you to decide whether this is good or bad. The Palestinian Authority holds elections, and surprise, surprise, Hamas, Hamas, the militant terrorist organization, right, which in its in its declaration, in its charter, is uh, uh, committed to the complete annihilation of the state of Israel and replacing it with the Islamic State, wins the elections. Hamas, of course, founded by Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. Um, he was a paraplegic, he was almost blind, but he was kind of the, the, um, the inspirational leader the, the, uh, of Hamas. They win. And as soon as they win the, these fair and free Palestinian elections, uh, which many scholars say was just a, a response to Arafat, the Palestinian people were so upset that Arafat had sold them out and had embezzled all this money that they want anything but him. And his, his party was the Fatah party, and Fatah was running, the other major party was Hamas. And so they voted for Hamas, and Hamas wins the elections. Well, as soon as this, which is pretty much understood by all Western states as a terrorist organization, as soon as they won the Palestinian elections, all the, all the financial aid from all these other countries got cut off. The US said, we're no longer sending any money to Palestine. We're not going to fund terrorism, as did most other European countries. So Hamas is yet, yay, we, we won the election. Where's all the foreign aid? Where's all the people that are going to help us pay to develop Gaza and, and government? And it wasn't coming. There was no money. Okay. In the meantime, jump back up to the north, um, there is an attack on a couple of Humvees that are patrolling the northern border. Remember that the Israelis pulled out in 2000 of southern Lebanon? Now that they're, you know, basically what happened is that another group, a Shia group, Right, not the uh, Hamas is a Sunni, essentially a Sunni Muslim group. A Shia group up in Lebanon called uh, Hezbollah uh, comes down in and takes two or kidnaps two Israeli soldiers. They do a little raid on Israel's side of the fence and take it. Israel doesn't like it when you come in to their country and take their soldiers, so they start shooting back. Hezbollah um, responds by start firing both. Um, uh, Katusha rockets and Kassam rockets, which are longer range rockets. And they're firing them at cities, at populated areas. And they're hiding these rocket launchers within apartment buildings. What do you do if you're completely outgunned by the, you're not gonna, they're not gonna fight the Israeli military uh, head up, right? <coughs> Israel, you know, is basically a lot of our technology and our stuff. So they're gonna get wiped out. So what they do is they hide behind human uh, shields, if you will. They hide their missiles in apartment buildings and then shoot from there. So when the Israelis try to take out these rocket launchers, they can't help but knock out a bunch of civilians, and then you've got civilian casualties, which you show to the press and anybody who points a camera in your way. That's how Hezbollah fights, right? That's how they fought. These are the guys that blew me up, right? So I was there for the sudden pullout of, of southern Lebanon. I was in Tiberias, because I got evacuated from, uh, well, Kyle was, was with me. We were in um, digging at Hatsor. We got evacuated. Uh, in Tiberius, and that's when I was out in the street in the trunk of my car, trying to get a shirt and, and some shorts um, uh, out of the trunk, and I hear a bomb, you don't hear it. You hear it go off, and it kind of pushes me into the trunk of my own car. It's one of these Kassam rockets, and you can't hear anything, and you go running into the into the bomb shelter, and you go, what's going on? And they just shot a rocket into Tiberius and blew us up. So this is what we call the Israel-Hezbollah War, the Lebanon War. And it was a war that was fought against the Hezbollah, right, who had moved that much closer to Israel, which is exactly what opponents of Barak's withdrawal of the troops of southern Lebanon said was going to happen. 
if you pull the troops out of southern Lebanon, they'll just get 10 kilometers closer. And they did, and they shot, and there was a war. So this was the 2006 conflict that you saw there. I know I'm going fast, but just want to get a couple more points out. Shortly after this, in 2007, June, uh, June of 2007, remember, Fatah had been in control for a long time with Arafat. The elections come along and Hamas wins. But now that Hamas has won, they can't govern because they have no money. Government employees aren't being paid, trash isn't getting picked up, water's getting turned off, right? And Fatah says, you know what, we're dismissing the Hamas leadership, it's a sham, right? Because President Abbas was a Fatah, but you have the Prime Minister who's Hamas. So you've got some partisan bickering within the Palestinian folk. And the Israelis are gone. They're not in, Israel, in Gaza anymore to, um, to blame. So you have what we call the Palestinian Civil War, a very short civil war, called the Waqseh by many Palestinians, which means, and uh, Waqseh means the embarrassment, if you will. It, it, was, it was humiliation ruin, collapse, something like that in Arabic. And the reason they call it that is it's Palestinians fighting against Palestinians. Blowing each other up. It was a Palestinian civil war in Gaza. The result of this civil war in Gaza was that Hamas kept control of Gaza. They basically <coughs> drove Fatah, Palestinians, out, and Fatah took control of the West Bank. So now, you don't just have Gaza sealed off with Palestinians. You've got basically Hamas sealed off in Gaza, and you've got Palestinians, right, Fatah, mostly Fatah, uh, in the West Bank, and they're trying to move forward making peace. Hama, uh, pardon me, Israel puts a navy blockade, nothing gets in and out of Gaza, and they just let it sit there. Now every once in a while they'll let in some humanitarian aid, but they just let it sit there. And the idea is to put political pressure on Gaza for the people to say, enough, we've had it, we made a mistake, sorry, we uh, elected some terrorists to run our country. Let's have some elections. Which, by the way, uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas just announced this past week. We're going to have Palestinian elections in June. Well, I'm not. The Palestinians are going to have Palestinian elections in June. And guess what Hamas decided to do? Boycott it. They said, no, we're not going to have elections. We're not going to vote. They know they're going to lose this election. So what they can try to do is undermine it and tell their people not to play. And then when Fatah is named the winner again, um, they can say, well, it wasn't a fair election. We didn't even participate. So again, you've got Palestinian rift, with, uh, pardon me, you've got rift within the Palestinians, Fatah and Hamas going on. At one point, it got so bad in Gaza, they realized, well, some, some, not all, but some said, we, well, we need to pick a fight. So they began to shoot rockets into Israel. So you've got Gaza's Hamas military shooting rockets into Israel, trying to provoke a conflict. Why? Same thing Hezbollah did, it's the same game plan. If you can provoke Israel to retaliate and civilians die, hopefully you can get an international outcry from everyone else and then you can get something. You can open up a border, you can get something like that. Problem was, it was pretty obvious during what the Israelis call Operation Cast Lead, and I think about the name, Cast Lead, right? Um, it was pretty obvious that Hamas uh, provoked this, right? So Israel said, you do not shoot at Israeli civilians, and went in there and just annihilated the place. I mean, the numbers were staggering. Thousands of Palestinians died, and, and I think maybe a dozen, two dozen Israeli, Israelis died in this thing. And they just wiped the place clean. 
And the reason, many scholars argue, that Israel was so overwhelmingly successful in Operation Cast Lead was that Fatah, remember Fatah had just fought a civil war with Hamas and got kicked out of Gaza? Fatah was saying, make sure you bomb this place here. Make sure, they were showing them the places where Hamas was keeping, them all, keeping all their weapons. So Operation Cast, it was so overwhelming that many international communities, even though they acknowledged that Hamas basically started this conflict, they said the retaliation was not even. It was so overwhelming, it was too much. It was too much, uh, so Israel took some fire for that. That's Operation Cast Lead. In 2010, and I just mentioned this one already, um, Israel announced we're going to start building some new, com uh, some new housing developments in East Jerusalem, which is not popular among the Palestinians. And they did it while Vice President Biden was in the country, which was embarrassing to the U.S. as well. And if you haven't followed the news, President Obama and Israel have not been getting along as, say, President Bush or President Clinton or previous presidents have. Finally, that brings us to this past weekend. Um, uh, the IAH Gaza flotilla, which took off from Turkey um, with a bunch of activists on there, trying to bring attention to the fact that there is a humanitarian <coughs> crisis in Gaza. Israel's got a naval blockade, they won't let anybody in or out. They're trying to do humanitarian, nonviolent protest, which, if you've heard anything from me over this class, is if you're going to protest something, that's the way to do it. I don't like screaming and yelling and picketing and fighting, and I don't like people shooting each other. If you're going to protest something and make a statement, do it in a humanitarian sense and do it in a nonviolent sense. Okay? So they put together a flotilla. Flotilla is an old term meaning with a bunch of ships. And they load it up with humanitarian aid and they ship it towards Gaza. Now, they know that there is a naval blockade by the Israelis in Gaza, and that's the point. They want to force the Israelis to come and make them stop. And then, when they make them stop, they can say, we're just trying to deliver humanitarian aid. And that then sheds light on the subject, and it puts pressure on the Israelis to lift the letting. That's the way it was supposed to happen. If you're going to do a humanitarian, nonviolent protest, it had better be humanitarian, and it had better be nonviolent. When the Israelis said stop, and they, and they were told that they were going to stop these ships, they didn't stop. Obviously, that's how you do it. The Israeli commandos came on the ship, and these guys on the ship started, on one of the ships, not all the rest of the ships, but on one of the ships, started beating the crap out of the Israeli soldiers, who came down with paintball guns, and they weren't properly equipped because they were not trying to kill anybody. But they started getting beat up on it any time. This is why Martin Luther King was so brilliant, and this is why Gandhi was so brilliant. If you're going to protest, do it nonviolent. No matter how much they hit you, no matter what you do, don't fight back. Because as soon as you lift arms, as soon as you try to fight back, that, that those people who are attacking you feel justified in, in taking you out. And as soon as they started beating these, the Israelis said, we're in danger, and started opening fire. Now, the people on that ship have knives and maybe an explosive and guns, maybe. It looks that way from the video, right? But as soon as you try to turn your humanitarian nonviolent protest into a violent protest where you're hitting the people who are trying to stop you, now that those people feel, Israel in this case, feels justified in shooting back, which they did, killing nine people. Now, in the grand scheme of things, this is a net loss for Israel. It, and this is now me moving away from my objective, and I'll begin the transition into kind of what I think, and you can begin to ask questions. Um, this is bad for Israel. Now, what it will do is you, you're already hearing the international outcry. Um, 
Israel will defend itself and say, look, we did what any other country would have done. If our soldiers are being attacked, we're going to fight back, and that's what they're saying. Um, but I think in the grand scheme of things, there will be criticism, and there already is criticism within the Israeli government, of saying, you should have handled this better. There had to be a better way than nine people ended up dying. Now, if it turns out that these humanitarian nonviolent protesters were shooting at the Israeli soldiers or were beating them with pipes or were throwing then it's going to, Israel will have a little better time saying, that's why we shot back. But it still looks very, very bad for the Israelis. And I wouldn't be surprised if a week from now or two weeks from now, there's a funeral today in Turkey. Right? A lot of these uh, people were with Turkey. A lot of these, this protest had met with members of the Hamas leadership in Gaza to make sure that the protest would go along. But it turned violent. Sometimes protests turn violent. I wouldn't be surprised if a couple weeks from now, with Mahmoud Abbas saying, you know, we really shouldn't have the Palestinian president, saying we really shouldn't have had that second intifada. And we're ready, he also said, um, according to the Washington Post, we're ready to sit down at the negotiating table whenever Prime Minister Netanyahu is ready. And I wouldn't be surprised if Prime Minister Netanyahu says, okay, let's sit down and talk about this, because this is really bad for Israel. Now, it's also very bad for Gaza, right? They're, they still didn't get all that humanitarian aid. So I think, if I'm, I'm not sure on the facts here, they may have let some of that humanitarian aid in. I know that they've opened it up in the past. I know that Egypt has opened up their border. Remember, it's not just Israel that's blockading Gaza. Egypt is also blockading Gaza from the south. They don't want to mess with all the militants as well. But I know that Egypt has opened up its border, and now they're allowing materials to come in. Israel doesn't want Gaza and Hamas specifically to rearm, so they don't have to have an operation cast lead again. But if you shut off the border, you also shut off all the humanitarian aid, and that looks bad. That's the conflict. For whom do you root in this? You know, maybe you root for someone because your religion or your ideology or ethnicity. But you can see on both sides there is there is some there there are fault on both sides of this issue. And we see it. And you've seen it. You guys have grown up with it. You've seen in the reports Israel Palestine Israel Palestine. Hopefully now you at least have some knowledge of how we got here historically. What they're talking about when they refer to crusades and the, the, the Zionist the U.S. partnership, hopefully you know a little bit more about um, this. Uh, what, what, a, what a jihad is, right? what an intifada is. All of these terms that are flowing around. Hopefully, we have at least given you some information as to the history. Now, whatever side you want to root for, whoever, or if you choose to do what I do, and that is try to argue on behalf of a Palestinian and an Israeli state. Let's sit down, make peace. Make this happen finally, once and for all, and let's just stop shooting each other. Let's be kind to one another. That's why I'm, I'm not for either side. I, I hope I've made that very clear. Every country has a, a right to defend itself, but you shouldn't take that out on the, on the populace. But hopefully this class has at least given you some information as to the history of Jerusalem and why we're doing what we're doing and why people care about it. All right. With that, I will formally end our lecture. This is our last lecture, so thank you for all of your uh, attention for the past what, 10 weeks. This is our 18th lecture, if you divide them up.